The sin that is unforgivable is the resolute and rebellious resistance to the enlightenment that the Holy Spirit brings. Holy Spirit is the power that came upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a power, but he comes upon Jesus and he anoints Jesus with power to perform the mighty works. The mighty works are intended to testify of himself and those things are giving, and here's a word, enlightenment. Let's latch on to that word, enlightenment, understanding, revealing. The Holy Spirit is revealing truth by way of the mighty works that Jesus is performing now, these scribes say, well, those mighty works that Jesus is performing don't say what they're intended to say, which is he is the son of God. Instead, they are saying the opposite, that he is the son of the devil. Therein lies the sin. And here's a phrase, you may not have heard this. I think I coined it, but it's the phrase enlightened blasphemy. That is the unpardonable sin. There comes a point in which one has been enlightened in their mind to understand that Jesus is God. And in the face of that enlightenment, the heart will not yield. And that sin, if it progresses, will reach a point at which the Holy Spirit, who is doing the enlightening, becomes so offended that the Holy Spirit is done. And when Holy Spirit is done, there is no repentance. All sins would be forgiven with repentance. But when Holy Spirit is done, there is no repentance. And therefore, Jesus will say, there comes a point where there's eternal guilt because there will be no repentance once Holy Spirit has been so offended, once He has been so outraged, once He has been so belittled because His work of enlightenment to your, make sure you understand this, mind. We're not talking about a heart conversion. We're not talking about being made alive to God. We're talking about the Holy Spirit communicating to your mind that these things are true. And yet your heart resolutely saying, even though I must say those things are true, I will not believe it. I will not yield to it. I will not submit to it. That is the sin that eventually becomes unforgivable and unpardonable. Notice with me that Jesus does not say that these scribes have committed that sin. What he's saying is a warning. You're on the way to committing that sin. Unless you turn, unless you yield to what you have been shown in your mind to be true, this is where this will take you. To the point at which there is no longer the chance for repentance. So 
This is not a sin that could only have been committed in Jesus' lifetime. Furthermore, or this is a sin that can be committed today and is still committed today. Furthermore, this is not just the sin of looking to the work that Jesus does and ascribing it to the devil. That's a very narrow view of what Jesus is saying here. That, that's like Jesus, Jesus is giving one manifestation of the sin. And that would be tantamount to, to saying this one manifestation is the same as the sin. For example, if, if you were to say, if I were to say to you, you know what, if you were to go home and, and, um, and uh, take out a butcher knife and, and stab somebody in the heart until they're dead, that's murder. And then you say, okay, well, that's the sin of murder then is stabbing somebody with a butcher knife. Yes, it is. But that's one manifestation of it. That's one expression of it. In the same way, Jesus is saying here that that's one expression of the sin to resolutely in the face of miracles say, no, that's Satan doing that. Jesus is saying that's one expression of that. Not the only expression. Okay? So now let's just spend real quickly, let's just see that this is not the only place that this sin shows up. All three synoptic gospels have this story, but this is not the only place this sin occurs. So we see the beginnings of this in the Old Testament. If we were to go all the way back to the Old Testament, we will see the beginnings of it, for example, in Hebrews 12, verse 17. And I know somebody in the room is saying, wait a minute, Hebrews is in the New Testament, not the Old. I know that. But it's talking about an Old Testament character, Esau. So you remember the story of Esau, so hungry he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew, right? So the writer to the Hebrews of that says this, For you know that afterwards Esau, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He desperately wanted to repent, but he couldn't. Okay, so that's, that's just a hint of it in the Old Testament. We also see another hint of it in Numbers 15. Numbers 15 is a teaching in which we're told about the priest can declare forgiveness for, for in unintentional sins. If you commit this sin unintentionally and you come and you give the proper sacrifice and you're repentant in your heart, then the priest can declare you forgiven unless it was what's called the sin of the high hand. You can see it in the passage there, the sin of the high hand. The sin of the high hand was not unintentional, but it was committed with full knowledge of what you were doing. The person who does anything with a high hand, whether he's a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people because he has despised the word of the Lord. So there's sort of the traces of it from the Old Testament. But the sin that is unforgivable is the resolute and rebellious resistance to the enlightenment that the Holy Spirit brings. So it stands to reason that in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, is when the Holy Spirit brings the most enlightenment, the most understanding, right? So it makes sense to us that the New Testament is where this sin really comes to fruition. Where we really see the sin clearly is under the ministry of the, of the Holy Spirit under the New Covenant because that's where the revelation is the most. And the sin, the, the sin that's unforgivable, that's unpardonable, is the resolute, rebellious refusal to yield what the Holy Spirit has enlightened you to know in your mind. Okay, so we see this in uh, the writings of the Apostle John, First John chapter five. This shows up, verse uh, sixteen. Uh, John mentions this in passing. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. 
So John says, you see your brother sinning? Pray to God. God will hear that prayer and God will answer that prayer. If you see your brother stuck in sin or your sister stuck in sin and committing sin, pray for them. But there is a sin that leads to death. And notice what John says. I do not say that that one one should pray for that. In other words, this is staggering. But John just said, if your brother is committing the sin that leads unto death, there's no sense praying. Isn't that surprising? Now, John doesn't say what that sin is, but he did address it earlier in chapter 2. So now let's look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, follow the train of thought. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So the subject matter here is Antichrist or against Christ. Those who are outside the family of God, those who have set themselves up in opposition to God, the Antichrist, John says, have come. Verse 19, they, meaning the Antichrists, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Do not use that verse to speak of those who were part of a church and then left to go to another church. That's not what John's talking about. He's not saying they went out from us to join that other church on the other side of town. Because John is writing this in the context in which there were no multiple churches. And you either, there was one gathering of Christians in an area and you were either part of that or you weren't. And so John is not saying, oh, they went out from us because they didn't like the preacher or they didn't really care for the music or whatever. He's saying they left the church. Why? Because they were antichrist. They were not of us. If they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Verse 20, but you, here's the contrast, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and that anointing by the Holy One does what? Brings you all knowledge. So you, in opposition, in contrast to the Antichrists have received from Holy Spirit knowledge, understanding, insight, enlightenment. Verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. I'm writing to people who have been illumined, who have been enlightened to the truth of God. Again, not speaking of heart conversion, but speaking mainly of the mind, that the mind has been shown. God has shown, the Holy Spirit has come and He has communicated to you, to your thoughts, to your mind, that this is believable. This is true. This is right. You should believe what this says about the Son of God. So you have this knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And now now He says, well, who's the liar? The liar is the one that denies Jesus is the Christ. That's the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. The Antichrist is the one who having been made privy to the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, nevertheless, they're the liar that says, no, he's not. You see? So they're the ones who lie in the face of enlightenment, in the face of illumination, and they say, oh no, he's not the Christ, even though they've been shown he is. Verse 24, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. In other words, the enlightenment that you've received the understanding that you've received, continue in it. Continue in that so that you will not go down the path of the Antichrists who having been shown that that Jesus is God, nevertheless refuse to yield to it. Okay? So that's what he's saying in 1 John chapter 2. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. 
Here the sin comes up once again. And here's how, here's one of the places that we know that Jesus wasn't talking specifically about attributing to Satan the things that God does. Because in these contexts, we're talking about the same sin, but nowhere is this talking about attributing to the devil what God does. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. For it is impossible, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Does that sound to you? Like those who have received enlightenment from the Holy Spirit, those who have, in the case of the scribes, seen miracles performed by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of attesting to the identity of Christ and the words of Christ, and nevertheless saying, I will not yield to that. I will instead believe that this is Beelzebub doing this rather than yield to what's obvious before my eyes. Does it sound like the same thing? It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. And I take that to mean that they have received not regeneration, but illumining, an opening of the mind, an understanding in the mental faculties, an, an a a mental understanding, an intellectual understanding that the scriptures are believable, that those who have once been enlightened and have shared in the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the bringer of truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. It's impossible for those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Do you hear Esau in there? It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. There's hearkening us back to Esau, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So here we see that the, this is addressing the same sin that Jesus is addressing, and it's in a different context. So the heart of this sin is the heart of blasphemy. Now we've said before that blasphemy is the absolute apex of the manifestation of evil in the world. The greatest display of evil in the world is not murder, uh, gang rape, wars, all these heinous, awful, terrible sins, the, the progressive sexual agenda, all of that is not the apex of evil in the world. The apex of the manifestation of evil is blasphemy. And if blasphemy is the apex of the expression of evil, then enlightened blasphemy is the apex of the apex. Because enlightened blasphemy is blasphemy that has been shown in the mind. He is God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Yet, I will not yield. That is enlightened blasphemy, and that is the apex of the apex. And that is the sin that if one continues in that sin, there will come a point at which the Holy Spirit has become so insulted as the agent of illumination has become so insulted and so grieved that he will then withdraw and there will from that point on be no repentance. Now there is a stunning picture of this when we see a picture of, of both sides of this. And it comes to us in one passage, one 
passage, one incredible passage in Acts chapter 7. The context of that passage is the stoning of Stephen. Remember the stoning of Stephen. Okay, So Stephen had just delivered this sermon, this long sermon, and the point of the sermon was, you Jews do not have a monopoly on God. You think that you've got God all wrapped up here in your temple in Jerusalem and in the Holy Land. Well, let me tell you, God has been at work outside of Israel for a long, long time. You don't have a monopoly on God, right? And and Stephen finishes that sermon. And look at what we read in chapter 7, verse 54. And now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. That is a picture of one who has received enlightenment and said, I will not yield to that. I will deny that. I will blaspheme that. Even though I have been illumined in my understanding, I've heard Stephen's words. They made perfect sense. There's no argument that I have with them. I can't prove them false. Nevertheless, I will call them a lie and I will grind my teeth at them. That's the picture of the ones who have traverse this point of no return, who have passed the point of the Holy Spirit's now withdrawing from them and they're enraged at what they hear and they grind their teeth at it. But there's somebody else in that same scene. And you know who it is? It's the one standing over to the side. And at his feet, he's got the outer garments of those who are grinding their teeth. And he too has blasphemed but there's a difference. And he himself says what the difference is in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, I received mercy, though I was a persecutor of the church, though I did the same things. I was a blasphemer just like them, but I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's the key difference. The ones throwing their, the rocks and grinding their teeth weren't acting ignorantly. They were acting, having been illumined to the truth of what Stephen just said. And they said, even though what he says is true, we will kill this man. Meanwhile, Saul, also blaspheming the church, was not at that point. He, in his own words, says, I received mercy and forgiveness because I was acting ignorantly in unbelief. A staggering picture of the two of these. 